0: Well, we continue our study in the Westminster Confession of Faith, turning our attention now to chapter 29 of the Lord's Supper. We've been in that part of the confession dealing with the church and the nature of the church, uh, and now the sacraments of the church. We've covered the sacraments generally. Uh, we've covered the, uh, the uh, doctrine of baptism, particularly last week, or the week before, actually. Last week we had a missionary visit. Uh, this week we are on the Lord's Supper, chapter 29, and... These are the questions we're going to seek to answer. First, what is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? What is it and to what end has the Lord instituted it? Why has he given us the Lord's Supper? Uh, Secondly, is the Lord's Supper a real sacrifice? And as I go through these questions, one thing you need to note is that, as I mentioned before in the general part on the sacraments, this document is not a polemical document it's it's a summary of christian truth from the bible Uh, but it's stated positively, and yet it exists within a context historically. One major uh, context is the issues going on uh, in the Reformation between the Protestant churches and the Roman Catholic Church, and then later on between the various denominations of the Roman Catholic Church. And so there are a bunch of questions that may seem very esoteric to us and very philosophical. Let me begin by saying uh, that the sacraments in general and the Lord's Supper in particular is a very practical doctrine. We partake of the Lord's Supper once a month. And therefore, understanding what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it is really a practical matter. Besides that, even though some of these questions may seem a little bit philosophical, a little bit esoteric, uh, the reality is that what we believe about the sacraments affects what we believe about the gospel. And what we believe about the gospel affects what we believe about the sacraments. And in all of this, what we believe about Christ, these things are all tied together. You can't separate them. And so it's very important that we have a right view of the sacraments, a right view of the Lord's Supper. If we do not, uh, we will tend towards a corrupt view of the gospel. And so we will consider, is the Lord's Supper a real sacrifice? Thirdly, what practices has Christ instituted for the Lord's Supper. Fourthly, what common practices are contrary to Christ's institution? Again, this is the historical, polemical context of this document. Are there are people who believe wrongly and are practicing wrongly, uh, and we would want to do these things uh, as the Bible requires us to do them, not according to our own imaginations? What is the substance and nature of the elements? What what really are these elements? And does that substance of the elements transform? This is, again, going to be one of those questions dealing with Rome and their wrong views on these matters. How should the Lord's Supper be received? That's a, an eminently practical question. How, how should you be receiving the Lord's Supper? What should you be doing uh, when it's being administered and, and it's being given to you and you're receiving it? How are you to do those things rightly? And then finally, Who is worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper? I'm looking at the clock and I say, I only have 30 minutes. Yikes. All right, so what is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? This is a big paragraph. All of these paragraphs are very big. They're very full. Let me try to to make it simple. First, who instituted the Lord's Supper? Well, the same person who instituted all the sacraments. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 26 through, 20, 26 through 28 records for us the words. says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood, the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So this is Jesus Christ. On the night of his betrayal, uh, he is instituting the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. When did he institute it? On the night of his betrayal when he was about to be arrested and he's impe- this is an impending arrest and, and his crucifixion are right at hand. Uh, but he's instituting this sacrament during the Passover and that's important because the inference from this is that Christ is replacing the Passover with the Lord's Supper. As Christians in the New Testament era, we no longer celebrate the Passover of the old administration of the Covenant of Grace. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. That is an inference based on Christ's instituting the Lord's Supper at the very same time as the Passover. What is the Lord's Supper? Well, it's a sacrament that's obvious enough, uh, but it's a sacrament of his body and blood. That is the outward elements of bread uh, and wine, they are sacramental signs that point, they signify uh, his body and blood. Remember, a sacrament is a sign and seal, and so it's pointing to something, and it is sealing uh, that something to uh, the recipients of the sacrament. Well, until when are we to practice or to observe this, this sacrament? Uh, this is, uh, is this just a one-time thing that Jesus did? He just had a meal and we're never to repeat it again, or maybe it was a temporary thing for a time. No, uh, we're told here that it's to the end of the age. The Lord's Supper was not a one-time event, but it is observed until Christ returns. Uh, we know this because Jesus himself says he will drink it new with you in his kingdom, in His Father's kingdom. There's many places where, where this language comes up where we are, we are partaking of the Lord's Supper until uh, Christ's return. All right, the big question, though, in this paragraph is why? You know, the the nature of something cannot be separated from its intended purpose. It, It exists for that purpose. And so if we want to understand anything about the Lord's Supper, we need to understand why the Lord Jesus Christ has given it to us. And here we're told that it is for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death. In other words, Christ instituted the Supper that we might remember him. And this isn't very controversial. Pretty much everybody in the, in the, in the world of Christendom, broadly considered, understands and believes uh, that the Lord's Supper is given as a remembrance. The question is, is it more than that? Well, Luke records Jesus' words, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, but we're, we're not supposed to just remember Jesus generally. I think it's important to the nature of the Lord's Supper uh, that we are specifically to remember Christ insofar as it concerns his death. It's his body being given. It's his blood being poured out for the new covenant. And so these facts combined with historical circumstances tell us that we are especially in the Lord's Supper to be remembering his self-sacrificial death. Uh, It's not primarily a celebration of life. I think of funerals nowadays, and nobody wants to call them funerals. Nobody wants to call them memorials uh, because we want to celebrate life. Well, that's all good and fine. Certainly, we know that Christ is alive. We know that He's raised from the dead. That He's ascended above the heavens. That He's returning. And there is a sense in which our perpetual observing of the sacrament points to our belief, our faith in those facts. Uh, There would be no reason for us to continue taking the Lord's Supper if it were not true that he was uh, raised from the dead, if it were not true that he was returning. uh, But it is primarily uh, a remembrance of his self-sacrificial death. And significantly, this remembrance is to be perpetual. Uh, This is really directed at Anabaptists and perhaps others uh, who maintain that this does not go on. It's not to be uh, observed perpetually. But we maintain with Paul always a good person to follow, Paul, right? Jesus, Paul. Paul explains in his institution, uh, his recounting of the institution, what he's received from Christ uh, to the Corinthians. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper then is a perpetual sign by which we are to remember Christ and publicly proclaim his death until he returns. And our continuing to partake implies our belief that his resurrection is true and his return is in fact true as well. But primarily it's a remembrance of his self-sacrificial death. Well, this is not just a bare remembrance. It's not just pointing us back uh, to the past. A uh, bare memorial view is typically what you're going to find in Baptist churches, uh, but as Presbyterians, as Reformed uh, folks, we especially believe that the Bible teaches that sacraments are not only signs, but they are also seals. That is, that they, they, they represent and they confirm, and they in fact confer uh, the benefits of the covenant of grace. And so Uh, This uh, sacrament of the Lord's Supper is also, we're told, for the sealing of all the benefits of His sacrifice unto true believers. Uh, The Lord's Supper is for remembrance, but it's not that bare memorial. As a sacrament, it's both a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. And so just as a seal on a deed confirms a person's right or interest, perhaps to a piece of property or to a car, depending on if it's a, it's a deed for a house or a vehicle or anything else. It, it confirms the benefits of the sacrament. But notice to, to whom these benefits are sealed. It, it specifically says here, to true believers only. And that means not the ungodly who falsely profess faith in Jesus. Uh, we're going to get to that at the very end. Uh, what What's really going on when the ungodly, when the wicked are partaking in the Lord's Supper? And the answer is nothing good. It does them no good to have it if they do not worthily partake. But we'll save that for the last section. Fourthly, it's for the spiritual nourishment and growth in Christ. So as surely, and this is the, the nature of a, a sign, right? It has some correspondence. And in this case, we know that Bread and wine are for the nourishing of our bodies and for our growth into maturity. And in in a similar way, uh, the the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is for our uh, spiritual growth and for our maturing uh, into our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, It's also for their further engagement in and to all the duties which they owe unto him, which you owe unto him. And so partaking of the Lord's Supper is, is a personal act of covenanting. We're, we're going to emphasize the corporate aspects through much of this lesson. But it's important to recognize that each person as they're partaking in the Lord's Supper is personally covenanting with the Lord Jesus Christ and so we are to consider not only the benefits which are represented to us and sealed to us but also our duties namely a repentance from sin a trusting in the lord jesus christ and an endeavoring to obey him that's true repentance it's 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 turning away it's turning towards and it's following after and these are our duties in the covenant of grace Well, sixthly, to be a bond and pledge of their communion with Christ and his people as members of his mystical body. And so when we say the Lord's Supper is a bond and pledge, really what we're saying is our our communion with Christ and his people uh, is a a bond and pledge of that. We, We mean that those who partake of it are publicly and solemnly affirming that they belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his people. And so it's a very important aspect of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It's a, a public uh, affirm it's, it's the opposite of what Peter's doing when he denies Jesus three times. It's us affirming month by month through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we belong to Jesus Christ and we belong to his body, his mystical body, which is all his true believers uh, together as one. All right, second question, is the the Lord's Supper a real sacrifice? And so this is one of those questions that's steeped in, in, in history, and it's a complicated context. Let me just start by reading a few pieces of Scripture. That's always a good place to start as we ask the question, is the Lord's Supper a real sacrifice? Well, we believe, based on many Scriptures, but especially in the book of Hebrews, Uh, that Christ once and for all sacrificed himself on the cross. Hebrews 9.28 says Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Hebrews 9.26, going a few verses earlier, says now once in the end of the world he has appeared to put away sin. And then a few chapters previous to that, Hebrews 7.27 says he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily since he did this, key word, once for all when he offered himself. And so the author, to the Hebrews at least, is very clear that Jesus Christ offered himself as a sacrifice how many times? Once. Well, Rome, being Rome, maintains the Lord's Supper, which they call the Mass, is a perpetual, that is ongoing, and propitiatory sacrifice. Propitiatory meaning it's appeasing the wrath of God due for sin against you. And so the Roman Catholic Catechism says that the Eucharist was instituted, instituted that the church might have a perpetual sacrifice whereby our sins might be expiated. That's from the horse's mouth themselves. Well, why, why do they believe this? Well, they argue this really not primarily on Scripture at all, uh, which clearly says, I've read from Hebrews, clearly says Jesus Christ offered himself once for a sacrifice. So on what grounds do they assert that the Lord's Supper is a perpetual, propitiatory sacrifice? Well, it's, it's really just founded on their tradition. It's based on their tradition that they, they, they assert this. John Dick writes really well, he's a Reformed guy, he says, the, the great argument, according to the Roman Catholic Church, for the sacrifice of the Mass is apostolical tradition, by which they mean anything which was said or done by some superstitious fool in a remote age, which other superstitious fools were pleased to admire. And he's being a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but the, the point is, is it's not founded upon Scripture It's actually very clearly contrary to Scripture, as is often the case with the Roman Catholic doctrine of tradition. Reformed people actually have a a right view of tradition. We we affirm tradition. I was just teaching in my Sunday school last Sunday uh, about tradition just briefly. We are a confessional church. I'm teaching from a confessional document. We confess the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. We make use of church tradition insofar as it is founded upon Scripture and is agreed with Scripture and is not contrary to Scripture. Roman Catholic tradition, on the other hand, as I've demonstrated from Hebrews, is very clearly contrary to Scripture. It is not. The Lord's Supper is not a real sacrifice. It is not a perpetual, propitiatory sacrifice. Uh, this is contrary to Scripture. Well, they will try to make appeal to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 21. Christ is a priest forever and really, the reason they do this is because they, 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 they figure, well, if, if Christ is a priest forever, what do priests do? Well, they offer sacrifices. And so, therefore, Christ must be perpetually offering a sacrifice to us. The problem is Scripture clearly says that he offered himself once as a sacrifice. And actually, the book of Hebrews is making a big point that there's a reason why he's a better priest than every other priest. is because he only has to offer the sacrifice once because it's a perfect sacrifice. What else is Jesus doing? If he's a priest forever, we agree that that's true. Is there anything else a priest does besides offer sacrifices, especially if they've offered a perfect one? Well, yes, in fact, there is. He is a priest continually making intercession for us. What is Christ doing? He's not offering more sacrifices. We don't have more sacrifices in the Mass. We have a priest who's a priest forever, and his work as a priest is primarily that of praying for you. I think that should be a great encouragement to us. Well, if the Lord's Supper is not a real propitiatory sacrifice, what then is it? Well, we believe it is a commemoration and a spiritual oblation. What does that mean? Well, commemoration is simply that we remember Christ's death. We've already covered that. What's What's a spiritual oblation? An oblation is something we offer to God. In the Lord's Supper, what we are offering to God is our praise and our thanks for His death on the cross. So when you're taking the Lord's Supper, that's what we're doing, right? We're remembering his death and we're praising God that he sent his only son to die on the cross for you and for me. That is what we're doing in the Lord's Supper. Well, Why does this matter? I mentioned already it's because wrong views of the sacraments come from and lead to wrong views about salvation. Think about it. If Mass is a perpetual and propitiatory sacrifice... What does that mean about Christ's sacrifice on the cross? If we still need more sacrifices, if they need to be continually offered, that says that Jesus was a liar when He said it is finished on the cross. That's what that means. It means it is not finished and it is not sufficient. And that destroys the true gospel. If this is the case, there is really no meritorious basis. If the work is not finished, if if the sacrifice on the cross is not sufficient, there is no meritorious basis by which Jesus has earned salvation. There is no basis for which God the Father can say, not guilty. More than that, innocent. More than that, righteous. He, He cannot be both just and justifier if the propitiatory sacrifice on the cross was not sufficient. It destroys the gospel. God's wrath, in the Roman view, is not finally satisfied. And therefore, sinners must constantly be coming to a priest who who re-sacrifices Christ in order that they may be forgiven. And that's the whole point of the Roman view of the sacraments, in fact, is to make you utterly dependent on priestly mediation, not the priestly mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ, but of men. Well, for these reasons, our confession of faith uses language like this. It calls this most abominably injurious to Christ's one and only sacrifice, the only propitiation for all the sins of the elect. Well, what practices has Christ instituted for the Lord's Supper? How, how, how do we do this? What are the nuts and bolts of how we do the Lord's Supper? Well, the Bible records for us very clear procedural language. Uh, the evangelists and in, in the three Gospels, and Paul also recounts Jesus' own words and actions, how he, he took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink, for this is my blood of the new covenant. This is very clear procedural language on how we are to partake and administer the Lord's Supper. They are to, ministers, ministering in Jesus' name, aren't left to their own imaginations to kind of make a nice liturgy for the Lord's Supper. They, they've, been received, they've received commands and instructions for how they are to do it. They are to declare his word. They are to pray and bless the elements. They are to break the bread and take the cup. They are to give both the bread, underline both, the bread and the cup to communicants. Why I emphasize both will be plain in a moment, but the procedures for administering the Lord's Supper are simple and clear, and they're recorded for us in the scripture. And yet, Rome corrupts this simple sacrament by adding hand washings and processions and sprinklings with water, incense and censers and signs of the cross, sprinklings of water, kneeling, all of which have absolutely zero warrant in Scripture. Will we worship the Lord our God according to his commands Or will we do so by our own hands and according to our own imaginations? That is the question Scripture asks time and time again, and it is largely what the Reformation was actually about. Sola fide, justification by faith alone, grace alone, all that. Yes and amen. Right worship, biblical worship. This is why the Reformation happened. What common practices then are contrary? If that's how you're supposed to do it, what then were the common practices that were contrary to Christ's institution. I gave you some examples already. By the time of the Reformation, though, the Roman Catholic Church has introduced all sorts of practices that went beyond the simple and clear prescription of Scripture, that which was instituted by Jesus Christ. First, they allowed private masses where priests would receive the sacraments apart or without a congregation. Secondly, they practiced what we call half-communion, meaning that they denied the cup to the people. They gave them the bread but not the cup. Why did they do that? Well, they, they were worried maybe the laity might spill the blood of Jesus Christ. That would be bad. We wouldn't want that. Maybe if the, the cup got kept too long because they were reserving it so that they could pray to it and worship it, if he kept it too long, maybe it would turn sour. And then what happens with sour wine? Does it stay the blood of Jesus Christ? Well, who knows? Some people just simply can't drink wine without becoming drunk or sick. And so they made all these excuses as to why they would deny the cup to the people. The only problem is that Jesus Christ plainly gave the bread and then gave the cup. Will we do what the Lord Jesus Christ says or will we be wiser than him? Well, thirdly, they worship the elements often lifting them up in processions and carrying them about for adoration Uh, the council of Trent declared there is no room for doubt that all believers in Christ according to the customs according to the customs always received by the Catholic Church should offer to this most holy sacrament the worship of Latria and then it goes on to anathematize that is to curse anybody who denies uh, the worship of the elements in this way And so the Roman Catholic view is if you do not worship, if you do not give latria to the elements, that is through prayer especially, then you are cursed. Well, finally, priests often reserve the consecrated elements either to take to the sick. That's a noble enough idea. Uh, It's just not allowed. It's not warranted in Scripture. There's no example of such private communions for the sick. Or they would more often, they would reserve a part of the elements to simply have in the, in the, in the sanctuary so they could just worship it, pray. Uh, this, is, this is what they were doing. And so we maintain that all of this is, again, contrary to the very simple practices instituted by Christ and the very nature of the sacraments. Christ never told us to take the Lord's Supper by ourselves or to worship the elements. And so very simply, we don't. It's not complicated. You don't need a PhD in theology to know that. Uh, The Lord's Supper is a corporate and communal sacrament. It represents Christ's body and blood, and it is our communion in his body, uh, the church. And so it's against the nature of the sacrament. Being a corporate and communal sacrament, to to go and to take it privately, uh, that is not in accordance with the Scripture or the nature of the sacrament. Pressing on because I have seven minutes for three more paragraphs. What is, the, what is the substance and the nature uh, of the elements? Rome, on her own authority, institutes countless sacramental practices, but at the root of them all is this wrong conception here of simply how language works. What is the relationship between the signs and the things s- signified? Rome understands Jesus' words, this is my body and this is my blood, as literal and physical, uh, in the literal and physical sense. It, it, such that the bread and the wine are identified, it's an equal that is there, in the Roman Catholic view, is an equal sign. Uh, the bread and the wine equal uh, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. But we believe that the relationship between the sign, that is the bread and the wine and the thing signified, the body and blood, is not literal and physical, but sacramental. What does that mean? It means that the union between sign and thing signified is a relationship of significance. Just and this isn't I mean I know that's complicated, but it's not complicated. We understand if you you hold up a picture of your grandkids and you say this is my grandkid. That that's not your grandkid in your wallet. It, it's a picture, it's a sign pointing to your actual grandkid who is alive and well and doesn't live behind a pocket of vinyl. This is simply just not how language works. Well, this is how we believe, and as a result, we do not believe that the bread and the wine becomes literal and physical body and blood, as Roman Catholics do. Rather, the bread and wine signify Christ's body and blood, because Christ instituted them to do so, and therefore, following Christ in this, we call these signs by the things they represent. It's it's no sin to say this is the body of Jesus Christ. This is the blood of Jesus Christ. We understand it's not in an equal sign; it's in an arrow sign. It's pointing to those realities. John Dick says, having blessed or given thanks, he constituted the bread and wine, signs of his body and blood. This is the proper place to take notice of this important fact. Although the elements were made significant in the act of giving them to the disciples, he said, I have the bread, this is my body, and of the wine, this is my blood. Thus what is called the sacramental union was established by which nothing more, nothing more is meant that the element becomes signs or figures of his body and blood and bear the names of the things which they represent that's how language actually works how should the lord's supper be received well we have two things really here in this paragraph we, reso- we we receive the lord's supper properly in two ways first outwardly by the the physical partaking of visible elements of both the bread and the wine i think we all know that you, you have to the, the pastor must break and, and give he must lift up the cup and give it to the people, uh, and then we are to receive those elements and we are to partake of them physically, carnally, right? In our own mouth, with our senses. But more significant than this, we are to partake inwardly by faith, receiving and feeding upon Christ Himself. We do, no, we do ourselves no good by eating bread and wine if we are not by faith feeding on Christ Himself in the sacrament, Christ does not come down physically from heaven to dwell in bread and wine, nor does he hide himself in, with, or under the elements. And this is getting at the Lutheran Church. It's been getting at the Roman Catholic Church for a while, but as history progresses, debates over the Lord's Supper uh, spread within the Reformed camp even, and there's a lot of arguments about the exact nature. And so the Lutherans denied transubstantiation. The bread and the wine don't become The body and blood of Christ, but they advocated for consubstantiation, which basically means that he's in, with, under, behind, on top, whatever that means, it doesn't mean much. We reject that view. But he is present. We do believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is present. He is present to us as surely as the bread and the wine are present to our physical senses as surely as we taste and feel and touch and smell christ is present not to our physical senses but to our faith in other words christ is present in the lord's supper but we can't we can't touch him we can't smell him but he's present how is he present well how has he promised to be present By His Holy Spirit, Christ is present in the sacramental acts, spiritually. And it's not so much that Christ comes down to heaven in the Lord's Supper, as much as it is that we lift our hearts to Him by faith, by the Holy Spirit, being in union with Him. We lift our eyes to the ascended and resurrected and exalted Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, and we are united in him, and we receive and feed upon him by faith. Our right, last paragraph, are all men worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper? And the answer is no. Paul warns, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And he goes on to say, for if anyone For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment to himself. That's 1 Corinthians 11, 27, and 29. He goes on to explain, That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. If you want a practical reason why to pay attention to the, the doctrines of the Lord's Supper, well, it's because people are coming unworthily. They're getting sick, and some of them are dying. And so we need to be sure that we partake worthily. But this passage is primarily about unworthy participation. You see, unworthy participation in the Lord's Supper is dangerous. It's a deadly matter. Temporal and eternal judgments fall upon those who partake unworthily. Why? Because unworthy participation is a sin. And so we need to be careful to consider what disqualifies a person from partaking in the Lord's Supper. And our paragraph here highlights two classes of people. First, ignorant men. That's those who don't yet understand who Christ is and what he has done. They are not worthy because of their ignorance. And then secondly, wicked men. Those who perhaps do understand who Jesus is and do know what he has done. They're familiar with the gospel. They may even profess to know Jesus. They may profess to be Christians. And yet, if they are still walking in unrepentant sin... If they are not truly trusting in him, if they are not really endeavoring to follow after him, if they are living wicked lives, then they are not worthy to participate in this sacrament. Although these sorts partake in outward bread and outward wine, the reality is they gain no blessing by doing so. And therefore, they are not to be admitted to the table. Well, who's going to prevent them? Well, that's, that's the job of the minister in conjunction with the session. We are to fence the table. You, you, know, you hear those words spoken in the front of the pulpit every Sunday we partake. You know, If you're not a member in good standing in a Bible-believing church, why do we say that? It's because those are the standards for admission into the Lord's table. And we, we are responsible for fencing the table. I think of Calvin when the Libertines uh, wanted to partake of the Lord's Supper, and they were in scandalous sin. And Calvin said he would guard that table with his life. That's how serious this matter is. It's for your good, and it's for our good, because we're responsible, and you're liable. And if we do not partake worthily, we are liable uh, to death and judgment. 752. Let me conclude by reading what is required to the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper. Paul simply says we must examine ourselves. I wish I had 20 more minutes, but let me just read the the answer of our catechism summarizing the truth of Scripture. It says, it is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest coming unworthily... They eat and drink judgment to themselves. Concluding practically, what does this mean? If this is true, how should you come to the Lord's Supper? We just had it last week. We'll have it again in a few more weeks. How should you come? You should come prepared. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you repenting of your sin? Are you endeavoring to walk in obedience to Him? If you are not, then you are likely to be coming to the Lord's Supper unworthily and it will not go well for you. That is what the scripture teaches. Let's pray that we all come worthily, repenting, believing, endeavoring to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll skip the review. You can watch the recording if you want to review. Next week on church censures. We're really getting into the juicy stuff, so Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the, the tradition of godly men seriously considering the scriptures and summarizing for us those truths contained therein and giving us, uh, them to us, Lord, in this, this excellent summary, which is the Westminster Confession of Faith. I pray that you'd give us wisdom and understanding uh, to discern the Lord's body, to repent, to believe, to trust in Jesus, to love the brethren, and to walk humbly before our Lord. Bless us and make this sacrament a blessing to us. I pray in Christ's name, amen.